going to ask you to turn one more time to the, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. The eighth chapter of the book of Romans, such a, such a great, rich, powerful chapter that we've been diving into, and, and God's just been uh, just teaching us and reminding us of so many powerful things uh, through this, and we're going to kind of uh, look at the, the last few verses and, and the truths that Paul just piles up there uh, together. But I want to take you back uh, just to even to maybe an Old Testament version of uh, just a great, great chapter. One that probably many of you have turned to at different times in your life and found some strength, some encouragement along the way. Uh, And that's the 23rd Psalm. And the words are very, very familiar to, to many folks along the way. But there, there's one, one line in there that for many folks, they, they hear and maybe associate with funerals or trials along the way. But uh, the, the, the King James-type version kind of talks about, yea, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And as I think about those powerful words, it, it kind of reminds me that when David penned those words, that, that he, he knew, he knew something about the God who would be with him in the valleys of life. But this is what I also know, and that is that very often when you're in the valley, whether it's the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of fear or the valley of uh, desperation or depression or whatever it may be, whatever that valley that you're walking through, that very often when you're in that valley, you don't feel like God is with you. You don't necessarily feel all of the, uh, the promises of God. You don't feel perhaps in some of those moments the, uh, the power of God. You don't, you don't feel those sometimes in the valley. And what that tells me is that, that before I get to the valley, I need to have some of those things nailed down in my life. I need to have some convictions in my life before I enter into the valley of the shadow of death. I think as, as David was talking about that, that it's not that, that, that he felt that all the time in the valley, but he had a conviction that he took with him into the valley. And that's the same thing that needs to happen in my life and yours. We need some convictions that we're going to take with us into the valleys of our lives. And where's some of the best places to develop those convictions? Well, oftentimes it's the view from the mountaintop, right? It's the, it's the view from the mountaintop that very often can give us perspective and give us strength that will help us to navigate the inevitable valleys of our lives. And in many ways, Romans chapter 8 is a mountaintop. Uh, among all these verses and all these chapters, you have some of these that just stand out. And you come to a chapter like Romans 8 as we've been walking through it now for several weeks. And you just, you just begin to understand that this is, this is a perspective chapter. This is a chapter that's filled with truths and filled with promises. And these are promises that give me a view from the mountaintop. And from this mountaintop, I'm going to have perspectives that are going to strengthen me and enable me to navigate the valleys of uh, my life. And so what I want us to do in this this last teaching uh, in this series is I want us to look at the last few verses together, and we're going to move through those. And as we do, I want to just kind of identify five unshakable assurances, five unshakable assurances that I want you to see here from the mountaintop. 
Because these are assurances that you're going to need when you walk through the valley. These are some assurances that you're going to have, need to have drilled deep into your heart, deep into your mind, if you're going to successfully navigate the valleys of life, the inevitable valleys that we'll all experience. And so as we think about these five assurances, I uh, want, want you just to kind of notice Paul's way of doing that. He asks a series of questions here, and you'll readily identify those questions as we walk through them here in just a moment. But he's almost like a good trial attorney, right? Or at least the ones on TV, right? Because everybody knows what's on TV is always true, right? And, And what do you know? By watching TV trial lawyers, what you know is the rule of thumb is you don't ask a question in the courtroom you don't already know the answer to, right? You're asking questions that you know the answer to. And so Paul is going to just fire off like a good trial attorney. He's going to fire off these series of questions. And in the midst of that, he knows the answers. He knows the answers. And those answers form five unshakable assurances. And I just want to nail these down. I want you to get a good mountaintop perspective this morning that will help you in the valleys of life. The first perspective is the first unshakable assurance is that God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 31 there in that eighth chapter. What then shall we say to these things? Everything he's been talking about in Romans 8 up to this point. If God is for us, who can be against us? What an awesome question. (laughs) And the answer is evident that that it is God who is for us. There's that statement even in the question. God is the one who is for us. Now, please understand what he's not saying here. This does not mean that there will not be any opposition, but that ultimately there will be no successful opposition opposition. No opposition will keep us from fulfilling God's purposes and doing God's will and experiencing God's best in our life. Even death itself cannot have the ultimate victory for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a God who is for us. Now, I want to just sit there for a moment because what happens to all of us is there are times when we wonder, if God is really for me, Why am I experiencing this? Why is this happening? Why hasn't that happened? If God is really for me, why am I in this valley? See, one of the enemy's oldest tricks, if you will, is to cause us, to get us to doubt the goodness and purposes of God, to doubt the goodness and purposes of our God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. And the whispers of the serpent was, did God really say, is God holding out on you? Is God keeping the best from you? And those doubts can sometimes creep in along the way, particularly when you're kind of covered by, surrounded by fog and you find yourself in the depths of the valley and you begin to wonder, is this really true? And that's when you need that mountaintop perspective to carry with you into the valley to say, regardless of the opposition, regardless of the situation, regardless of my feelings at this moment, regardless of, of what what it looks like and the, the limited understanding I have, never, ever, ever, ever doubt that God is for me, that God is for me. Think about it another way, that, that God has his eye on you, right? And, and I know, you, uh, you, you know, sometimes we do, you know, got my eye on you, right? 
You, you, right there. Got my eye on you, right? And, and you know, Robert De Niro kind of made that real popular in the, the Meet the Parents, right? You know what's going on. And you know, when he did that, it was like, he has his eye on you, but it's not for a good reason. He has his eye on you because he is just waiting for you to mess up. He is waiting to, to, to just jump on you. He's waiting to catch you in something. He has his eye on you. And sometimes we think that's how God's operating. That God's like in heaven. Just waiting to catch you do something wrong. No. God has his eye on you because you're the apple of his eye. Because he loves you more than you'll ever know. And that he desires the absolute best for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is on your side. We talked about last week uh, in the Holy Spirit. God has your back. God is for us and with that conviction kind of leads to a question and, and the question maybe is is maybe one one of the ways that i, I like that uh, abraham lincoln talked about it you know because sometimes we say we want we want we want god on our side right god's on our side sometimes we even carry that to our football teams right oh we're praying for our you know whatever it may be we want god on our side right but i think abraham lincoln had it right he said my concern is not whether god is on our side but whether we are on his side so god has already said i am for you that's not really the question the question is, am I for God? Am I with God? And that indeed is the pivotal question. Not is God for you. That is a rock-solid assurance. God is for you. The question is, am I with him? Am I for God? And I want to suggest to you this morning that maybe one of the reasons sometimes we struggle to believe that God is 100% for us and not holding out is because sometimes we're not 100% for God. We're holding out. And so we end up projecting that on God. If I'm not all in with him, then sometimes I begin to project that maybe he's not all in for me. But the first assurance in this last section is God is for you. Fix that in your mind on the mountaintop because you're going to need it when you walk through the valley. God is for us. Second unshakable truth, God will give to us. That God will give to us. Let's just keep following along the text in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's making this, this argument here. It's an argument that Paul would often employ. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. He says, you know, there are times when we doubt that God is for us. We doubt that, that God is going to give to us everything that we need to accomplish his will, to do what he wants us to do, that God is going to provide. He said, when you begin to doubt that, when you begin to, to doubt that in the valley, you go back. When you doubt God's love, when you doubt God's provision, where do you go? You go running back to the cross. You go running back to the cross, and you look at the cross, and you understand again, if Jesus did this for me, 
If God loved me enough, if God was so for me that he was willing to send his son to die in my place, then is he really going to hold out now? I mean, if he has gone that far in, do you really think he's going to hedge back now? He, he, has, he has said over and over again, I am for you. I am with you. I have gone to great lengths to show you that, particularly through the cross. John Stott put it this way, the cross is a guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. When you doubt his love, when you doubt his generosity, when you doubt his provision, go back to the cross. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I want to remind you, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. The cross was what opened up all the promises of God into my life and yours. All of these promises we've been talking about in Romans 8 find their yes in Jesus Christ. And so the argument he makes here is when you doubt that God will give to you whatever you need to accomplish his will, go back to the cross. The assurance here is to walk, to walk in an assurance that God will provide everything we need to do his will. Everything I need to do his will, God will provide. He he may provide that through other people. He may provide that through an idea. He may provide that through a capacity to work, to think, to pursue. He may just work in ways I can't even begin to put the pieces together. But God will provide everything I need to do his will. May not be everything I always want when I want it. May not be everything I desire some days. But everything I need to do his will, God will absolutely provide. And when I doubt that, I run back to the cross. As he says, on the mountaintop, nail down, nail down these assurances. God is for you when you feel like it and when you don't. That God who is for you proved it at the cross. And whatever you need, whatever you need to be the man, to be the woman, whatever you need to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish, he will provide. You can count on it because he's provided for you through the cross of Jesus Christ. A third rock-solid assurance that we want to stand on is that God will not condemn us, that God will not condemn us. And sometimes we find ourselves speaking those, those voices, listening to those voices of condemnation along the way. It's interesting. He started the chapter with the words, no condemnation. He comes back to it here toward the end. Uh, Verse uh, 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, Now, pause there for a moment. This incredible truth that there are times in the valley when we feel condemnation. When we feel under this condemnation, we, we, we understand the reality of our sin. And, and maybe at times we think, God, I, you couldn't forgive me again. God, you, you couldn't still use me. God, you still couldn't, couldn't love me. And in those moments, we have to come back. It's, it's not, it was never based on my performance. It was always based on what Jesus Christ did for me. And in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation 
And sometimes when we say that, somebody says, well, does that mean that sin doesn't matter? Does that mean it's, it's no big deal? No, 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 no. Actually, exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Forgiveness is not saying that sin doesn't matter. It is saying that it matters enough for Christ to give his life for us. If sin didn't matter, if it wasn't that big a deal, Christ doesn't come. You just blow it off, right? But it is a huge deal as we rebel against the love and the holiness and the purposes of Almighty God. I mean, there is not a bigger deal. It was such a big deal that Jesus Christ had to come and deal with it personally. And the way he dealt with it was through a perfectly sinless life and through a voluntary sacrificial death. And so Paul just builds on that. He said, oh, oh, please, here, no condemnation, not because it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal, but because of what Jesus Christ did. And he kind of summarizes it there in just a few statements. He reminds us that Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. That this sinless son of God came and took on human flesh and entered into a sin-scarred world. And he lived a life of perfect love and perfect obedience, the life that we were called to live. And though he didn't deserve it, he went and died on a cross to pay the debt that I owed and you owed because of our rebellion and because of our sin. Jesus died for me. Because of that, there's no condemnation. But that's not the last word because what he reminds us of is that Jesus also lives for me, that Jesus lives for me, that this same Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried in this tomb was resurrected, and he is now ascended to the Father, and he's coming again someday. And, and right here, right now, Jesus lives for me and promises me life forever in him. And what is he doing even right now while he lives for me? Romans 8 says that Jesus intercedes for me, that Jesus is interceding for me that right here right now Jesus Christ is crying out in prayer for me now I want to pause here for just a moment if you remember last week you say well that kind of sounds familiar it does because last week we reminded ourselves through Romans 8 that however imperfect our prayers may be on any given occasion that in that moment we don't pray alone we never pray alone because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with those groanings helping to lift that load that are too deep for words in perfect alignment with the will of the Father. And now he tells us as if that wasn't enough, the Son, the Son is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. I mean, it's powerful to know that somebody that knows about prayer is praying for you, isn't it? I mean, it's humbling to me. When people say, we're praying for you, and I know that they are. But to think, at this moment, the God who is so much for you, not only has the Spirit, but also has the Son praying for you. Do you think if he was going to condemn you, that that would be taking place? I mean, sometimes when I read this section of the God's Word, I'm thinking, God, woo, man, one of those would have been enough. One of those would, I mean, Holy Spirit interceding for me? That, that's all I need. Wow. Or the Son? Now, he says, I'm going to double up. I'm going to double up on that. Both the Spirit and the Son are interceding for you. And I just want to encourage you, Brian, just encourage us in prayer and, and, and coming together here the first uh, Wednesday of the month uh, in October to, to pray together. Listen, think about it. If Jesus is pleading our case, we should be pleading the blood. If Jesus is pleading our case, and that's what, that's what this word promises, 
We should be pleading the blood. Now you think, well, what, what does that mean? Is that some like, you know, mumbo jumbo magic words? No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the fact that we can come with confidence before God because we know we're not condemned. We're not condemned not because we got our act together. We're not condemned because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that shed blood of Jesus Christ has purchased us, has allowed us access to the Father. And so that I come into his presence and I don't come touting my own good day and man, how, how long I spent in quiet time this week or how much I studied the Bible or how good my performance was. Man, uh, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. That's the only thing that gives me access. But when I understand that, I can begin to live out of what Hebrews talks about. Let us then with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I have this heavenly Father who on the mountaintop reminds me there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived, died for you and lives for you and is interceding for you. Come boldly, come confidently before the throne of grace because I do not sit there to condemn you, but I am for you. I love you. I am with you. And as those truths begin to just drive deep into the bedrock of our being, we begin to understand the fourth unshakable assurance. And that is that God will make us victorious. That God will make us victorious. Skip down to verse 37 and we'll circle back to the, uh, those verses in just a minute. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. That's a, that's a great Greek word. Uh, many of us know, and in fact, is my, my guess is that probably somewhere in most of our closets are a swoosh, right? You got a swoosh, the Nike swoosh on your shoes or on shorts or a shirt or socks or something somewhere along the way. There's probably a lot of swooshes out there, right? Well, actually, the word Nike is, is a Greek word. It's a Greek word. It basically means victory. In Greek mythology, Nike would have been the, the goddess of victory, if you will. So that, that kind of became the, the, the genesis for that name uh, years ago now. But long before there was a tennis shoe with a swoosh, there was this statement of Paul using this word Nike as kind of its root. It's a compound word. It's uh, hooper Nikeos is, is in the text right there. Hyper Nike is the way to think about it. Hyper Nike. That you are more than a conqueror. He combines these words and he puts, he says, it's not enough to just say that you're a conqueror, but no, no, no. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are this hyper Nike. You are more than a conqueror. Whatever you encounter in the valley, whatever you walk through, whatever the challenge, whatever the opportunity, whatever the problem, whatever it is, whatever the darkness, you are more than a conqueror. In Christ Jesus, you are greater than that problem. You are greater than that obstacle. Please don't hear what he's not saying here. He's not suggesting that we're going to be immune uh, from the, the challenges of life. No, no, no. God doesn't guarantee us immunity from life's challenges. He guarantees us victory over life's challenges. 
Sometimes people have the mistaken notion that, well, if God is for me, I won't have these problems. If God is for me, I won't go through this trial. If God is for me, I won't encounter this difficulty. No, 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 no. Some of those we experience just because we live in a sin-scarred world. Sometimes we experience it because of some of our own choices. Sometimes we experience it because of the choices of others. But God uses all of those things. He, he uses them in our lives. But he says, you don't do it alone. Whatever I allow, whatever comes into your life, you are more than a conqueror through that. Not immunity, but victory. Said another way, if there is no test, there is no testimony, right? If there is no test, there is no testimony. I mean, look at the words. You can't even spell testimony without test, right? I mean, you, and in fact, it's, it's on the front end. If you're going to have a testimony, you're going to have a test on the front end. No test, no testimony. Many of us love epic stories. You know, we, we, we love uh, an epic movie. Well, what makes it epic is usually the epic struggle, right? There's this, this great thing that you had to overcome, this great obstacle, this unbeatable foe, this unconquerable force or whatever it is. And the, the hero and the heroine becomes more than a conqueror. They come out victorious in this, this epic battle, if you will. And maybe it's an internal battle or maybe it's an external one. Or maybe it's a space setting or an ancient setting or whatever it may be. But that, that story is the same. There's a great testing. There's a great struggle. And with a great testing and with a great struggle comes a great victory. And that's kind of part of the backdrop here, that God will make you victorious. And it may be an epic struggle, but it will be an epic victory because where there is a great test, there is a great testimony because we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And, and sometimes, let me just pause and go take a little side trip here. Uh, Somebody say, well, Jeff, man, if I, if I really start thinking like that, I mean, I'm going to get cocky, right? I mean, do I need to just start kind of strutting around and say, oh, I'm more than a conqueror. Just call me Hyper Nike. Oh, that's who I am, right? Well, actually, that is who you are. That is who you are in Christ Jesus. Let's make a clear distinction about some things that sometimes we get unclear on. There is a very real danger of pride. But in the end, pride is believing something about yourself that's not true. Pride is when you look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm the smartest, good-lookingest guy there is, right? I mean, no, you ain't. No, you ain't. <laughs> it is not true. It's not true. That's pride. Pride is when I say, I can handle this on my own. Pride is when I say, I don't need God. God, I got this. Pride is when I say, I don't need the body of Christ. Pride is when I say, I don't need people walking alongside me. I don't need to be part of a larger family of God. Pride tends to distance me and separate me from God and from others. Pride is sometimes hard to recognize in ourselves, but easier to recognize in other people. But at its core, pride is believing something to be true about myself that is not true true pride always has at its root a lie but if i believe that if i'm in christ jesus i'm more than a conqueror that's not a lie that's a truth on one end of the spectrum kind of a danger zone is pride and we can all struggle against it but on the other end of the spectrum is another danger that maybe we don't talk about enough and that is the danger of false humility a false humility is not believing something about myself that is true. 
This is something that is true. And if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me repeat this phrase probably countless times. The truest thing about me is what God says about me. The truest thing about me is what God says about me. Is it wrong? Is it dishonoring to God when I engage in pride and believe things about myself that aren't true, that distance me from God and others? Absolutely. But I'm going to suggest to you today that it is just as wrong and just as sinful and just as dishonoring to God when I don't believe something about myself that God has said is true. That I am basically saying, God, you lied. God, you're not telling the truth. God, what you say about me is not the truest thing about me. That's a false humility, and it dishonors God, and it distances you from people. It distances you from the life that God has called you to live. God does not want us to live with a pride or with a false humility. The Scripture calls us to walk in humility, but it's not a false humility. It's a true humility. And a true humility at the core of it is seeing myself as God sees me no more and no less. No more and no less. If I see myself as more than God says is true about me, I'm tending toward pride. If I see myself as less than God sees me, I am trending toward a false humility. Neither honors God. Neither opens up my life to God's best. What God invites us to is I want you to see yourself as I see you. And part of how God sees us is that if we are in Christ Jesus, we have a God who is for us. We have a God who will provide everything we need to do his will. We have a God who is is, is so much uh, for us that he sent his son to die for us, who is living for us, who is interceding for us right here, right now. And in all of those things, we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-Nikes. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians, but thanks be to God in Victory Sports. I know you guys love this verse, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The same word Nike, the same root word right there. Gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God does not want you, God does not want me to be defeated in the valleys of life. He wants us to experience the fact that we can be more than conquerors through him who Loved us. And that leads to the fifth, and perhaps in some ways the foundational, unshakable assurance. And that is the fact that God and His love will not leave us. That God and His love will not leave us. He begins to talk about that in verse 35 and picks it up in verse 38 again. Let me just go ahead and read those aloud. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Skipping down to verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, nail it down. Put this deep into the bedrock of your being. God and his love will never leave you. You will never be separated from God's love. Like Paul, we can live with a confidence. We can live with an incredible courage if we have that conviction, a conviction formed in the mountaintop, 
carried with us into the valley, a conviction about God's love for us, a love that was sealed and and demonstrated so powerfully on the cross of Jesus Christ, to have that conviction that nothing, nothing that comes into your life, not that job loss, not that disappointment, not that betrayal, not that diagnosis, nothing, not even death itself will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When I have that as a bedrock conviction, I begin to live with a God-centered confidence. I begin to live with a Holy Spirit-inspired boldness and courage along the way. Some of you know the name of Karl Barth. He was a, or he was a, a theologian in the 20th century, and many thought he was probably uh, the, one of the greatest uh, theologians of the 20th century. Uh, he was well-known in the church, even outside the church. He ended up on the cover of Time magazine, April 20th, 1962. It's a time when he was making kind of a lecture tour through uh, the United States, found himself at the University of Chicago, of all places. And as he was lecturing there afterwards, there was a Q&A time, and a student asked him this question. He said, could you summarize your whole life's work in a single sentence? Now, that, you may think, well, that wouldn't be hard for some of us, but please understand, at that time of the question, Barth had already written some 600 works. His kind of magnum opus, if you will, Church Dogmatics, was written over a 35-year span, 8,000-plus pages, a 13-volume set in and of itself. <laughs> right? Some of us struggle to write the grocery list, right? <laughs> and this student says, with all of that, could you, write, could you sum it up in a single sentence? Bar didn't hesitate. His answer was quick, and it was old school. He said, yeah, so I can. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> That's, that was the foundation. He could argue great theological thoughts with the best of them. But when it all was said and done, what was the bedrock? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. When that is rock solid in your life, it changes the way you walk through the valleys. It changes the way that you deal with people. It changes the way that you encounter challenges and problems. It's one of my favorite little pictures in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and it's just quirky when you read it. But the setting in Acts 12 is that Peter is arrested and not only arrested, but he's scheduled for execution. And this is a very real threat because someone has already been killed being a follower of Christ. So, so he knows this is a very, very, very real possibility. And so he finds himself the night before his execution, just hours before he is going to be called out to be executed. His life is going to be ended. And what do you do? What do you do on the night before you're ready to die? What do you do when you know you just have perhaps minutes yet to live? What do you do when you know this is not just a hollow threat, this is a credible threat that has already been carried out in the life of one of the folks that you loved and cared about? What do you do on a night like that? 
You know what Peter did? <laughs> look, look what it says. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, about to bring him out to execute him, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're going to be executed. Shouldn't you be pacing the floor or worried or calling the governor or something? He's sleeping. How are you able to sleep in the face of that? Now you can do it when you know that nothing, nothing, not even being run through with a spear or being beheaded or burned or crucified, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But before I go further, I want to make sure that you don't miss the significance of that phrase. Notice the last words in this chapter. All of these promises, all of these assurances that he's been stacking up, verse after verse after verse after verse, and then he comes to the end. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go back to the first verse of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please understand, everything we've been talking about is not just a blanket statement of assurance and truth for everybody, but it is for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I cannot walk away from this chapter without urging you, without imploring you, without begging you one last time to make sure that you know, that you know Christ Jesus is Lord. Because as we go back to that Corinthian passage, all of the promises, all the promises of Romans 8 find their yes in him. But you have to be in him. And so the pivotal question is, is Christ Jesus truly my Lord? Because if he's my Lord, all of these things are true. But if I am merely religious, if I am merely a cultural Christian, if I am merely connected to a church because it is, is kind of the thing I grew up doing or, or it's culturally kind of acceptable here in the South still or, or I just kind of like hanging out with some of these people or whatever it may be, that doesn't connect you to all of those promises. The only thing that connects you to those promises is Jesus Christ as your Lord. And so I ask you today, would you just be open to the Holy Spirit's prompting you and maybe just showing you where you are in relationship to him? And can I just urge you today, before you walk out of this room, if there's any hesitation about the nature of that relationship, any, any question about what it means not just to have prayed a prayer or uh, taken out a, a fire insurance policy, but, but, but to truly know Jesus Christ, not just as a forgiver, but as my leader, my Lord, the rightful ruler of my life, then I'm just going to implore you today, before you walk out of this room, walk back to a connect room. Let one of our folks 
sit down with you and explain more fully and completely our need for and God's provision for us in Jesus Christ and how you can know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, forgiver, friend, leader, ruler. And in that relationship, all, all of these promises find their yes in him. As we come to the reality of not only the close of this chapter, but the reality knowing that at some point there's going to be a close to our chapter. There's going to be a close to our earthly run. And none of us knows if that's going to be a few more hours or a few more decades. But we know that there will be a close. And how you face that close will in a large part be determined by your connection to Christ and how rock solid you understand these assurances to be. Harriet Beecher Stowe, in her history-changing book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, kind of revealed a little bit of her faith through the character of Uncle Tom. In that story, as Uncle Tom is drawing his dying breath, he murmurs words born out of the great eight. Who, who, who? shall separate us from the love of Christ. And as she wrote about Uncle Tom, he slipped into an eternity with the promises of Romans 8 as his escort along the way. John Bruce was a federal judge appointed by Ulysses S. Grant. On his deathbed, he instructed his daughter to fetch the book to bring the Bible. And as she went to to look, he told her to turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And he said, "I, I want you to place my finger, physically place my finger on these words. And then he quoted from memory, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when his daughter found those words, she put that Bible down on his body and she took John Bruce's finger and she, she placed it right there physically on those verses and with his finger on that promise he passed into eternity that's what I want for every one of you I don't know if you'll have the privilege of having somebody fetch the book physically for you but I hope that whenever that moment comes that whether you can physically touch that verse or not you will have it so anchored into your soul that you will know, that you will know that nothing, not even death itself, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if Christ Jesus is indeed my Lord. And so I want to just ask you as we close this series to dream with me for just a moment more. I'm just going to ask you to dream with me a little bit about what if. What if you and I begin to walk through all the valleys of our life with the perspective of the Romans 8 mountaintop? What if 
with every person, every circumstance, every situation that you encounter from this point going forward. You encountered it with the the core conviction, the rock-solid assurance that God is for me. That God has his eye on me, that God is with me. What if you encountered every person, every circumstance, every situation, knowing in the core of your being that God will provide everything you need to be the man, to be the woman, to do everything he wants you to do? What would it mean if you encountered every person, every circumstance, every challenge going forward, knowing that you know that God is at work in all things, working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? What if you encounter every situation in your life from this moment on knowing that you are a hyper Nike, that you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, your Lord. What if you knew as you encountered that person, that circumstance, that challenge, that unexpected thing that's blowing you out of the water, what if you knew that nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What would it look like? For you to live every day of your life going forward, knowing that the promises of Romans 8 are true. I think we'd live differently. I think we'd love differently. I think our church and our community would be different if the men and women of God really operated from the view of Romans 8. What if you began to live from this point forward as if all of the promises of Romans 8 were true for you? Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Oh, Father, how we thank you that you are the God in whom there is no condemnation, And there is no separation. That you are the God who is for us. That you are the God who has his eye upon us because you have made us the apple of your eye. You are the God who empowers us and leads us. You are the God who is interceding for us right now through the Spirit and the Son. Father, I praise you and thank you that in you we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Father, thank you that all of these promises are true in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I just pray today, I pray knowing that there's, there's, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a student, there's a child. There's someone in this room, Father, that right here, right now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you're drawing them to you. Today is the day that they they go from mere religiosity and cultural Christianity to a true experience of Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Father, I pray today that before they walk out of this physical space, they would walk into a connect room. They would walk into a brand new relationship with you. Father, I pray for every follower of Jesus Christ who is, who is in this room right here, right now. Father, would you guide us? Would you remind us? Would you teach us how to live as if all the promises of Romans 8 are absolutely true? Father, would you help us to live not with a pride that distances us from you and others, not with a false humility that doesn't believe what you've said is true, but Father, help us to live as if everything you said is true. Help us to live as Romans 8 followers of Jesus Christ. As you just continue to sit before the Lord right now, 
We have some questions for you under the section making it personal there in your note-taking guide. I'm just going to give you just a moment or two just to, to reflect on those questions. And I'm just going to encourage you right now just to maybe write down a word or a phrase. And maybe there's just one truth. Maybe there's one verse out of this series. Maybe there's just one of those assurances even out of today that you just say, you know, this is where I need to lock in on. This, this, I need to maybe memorize this. I need to put it on my phone, put it on my computer screen, put it on the front of my refrigerator. I just, there's some of these truths I just need to keep close and I just need to walk back through in my quiet time over the next few weeks. And What is it? What is that for you? What is that truth that you most need to focus on? And as you think about the people and the challenges and the circumstances and the opportunities of your life, and you think about all the promises of Romans 8, what is that step of obedience? What is that step that even appears a little risky that you, you know God's calling you to take? But the only way that you can take it is if all these promises are absolutely true. Just between you and the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to write that down. Just as God, out of this wonderful chapter in your word, this is how I'm going to respond to you. This is how I'm going to indicate to you that I believe that the truest thing about me is what you've said about me. Even as you're doing that, I just...